Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA. First, a word from our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitor is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 750 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance program, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors at W www.affiliatedmonitors.com. In this episode of This Week in FCPA, we take a look at the Cardinal Health FCPA Enforcement Action. We look at the question Mike Volkoff posed, is your compliance program effective? We consider Mike Peregrine's look at the Astro sign stealing scandal and the breach of fiduciary duty around corporate compliance programs. A CRO was fined $4,500 individually. What does it mean for compliance? How does conflict rob you of success? Yet another wow moment in compliance. Jim Deloach begins a two-part series on disruption and digital disruption and how you prepare for it. Julie tomorrow asks, are you a compliance professional under pressure? I take a look at the week's offerings in 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program. This month, we're focusing on innovation. I talk about some of the upcoming uh, places I'm going to be speaking on behalf of Conversant and also with Baker Tilly and the Philadelphia Institute of Internal Auditors. It's a great show. I know you'll enjoy it. Lots of information, packed show notes. So uh, check out the show notes and welcome to This Week in FCPA. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks so much for listening. I know you'll enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Mr. Monitor himself, Jay Rosen, for This Week in FCPA, episode 195 for the week ending, March 6, 2020, Texas Independence Day, for those of you not Texans. The Where Are You Going for Spring Break edition. With travel bans coming to the fore, Jay worries about spring break with the twins. I, on the other hand, am headed to Disney World. Not back to Disney World, but to Disney World. But we take a break to consider some of this week's top compliance and ethics stories. So, Jay, what say you? I say let's uh, let's board those airplanes and... uh... Don't buy those overpriced masks. So uh, tell us about our FCPA enforcement action of the week, Cardinal Health. So, Jay, we had the first SEC-only FCPA enforcement action of 2020. The Cardinal Health enforcement action was a relatively uh, small fine, $8.8 million. fine and penalty. It was both a fine and a penalty. That's important to note. Uh, and it had some really interesting uh, uh, things to look at. We've cited to articles from myself, from Matt Kelly in Radical Compliance, Mike Volkoff in Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, Jacqueline Jager in Compliance Week. Um, there were um, Mike and Matt took a look at it in terms of sort of command and control and corporate oversight over a subsidiary. I was really intrigued with the business relationship because you had an anomaly where Cardinal 
China, the subsidiary uh, had a customer, yet Cardinal China contracted to um, pay the subsidiary's employees and run the, or, excuse me, run the customer's business and indeed pay the uh, customer's employees. And then the customers had access to all the money of Cardinal China. And um, some $250 million were paid out in marketing expenses. So you begin to see the problem. But and the thing that really emphasized to me, Jay, is you need to understand the business relationship you're in. You and I talk about third-party sales agents, distributors, joint venture partners, team agreement partners. But there's not a finite number of business relationships. You, in fact, you're only limited by your imagination. So compliance needs to understand what the business relationship is and what the risks are. And that's how I really use the case to uh, um, uh, to talk about that in uh, my blog post on it. Uh, Mike Volkoff asks, is your compliance program effective? Jay, what say you? So uh, I, I kind of signed this up under uh, the tough love category from uh, Mike Volkoff. And Mike says that, you know, CCOs are quite often the cheerleaders for about um, touchy-feely things, how we can do things from ethics and compliance from a standpoint uh, of motivating the troops. But he says that when it comes down to it, when the rubber meets the road, uh, we should really talk about that 800-pound gorilla. And let's say that, you know, maybe our ethics and compliance programs aren't as effective as we'd like them to be. And, you know, CCOs are fantastic motivators because they believe in what they do, but they know deep down that they're living in a land of risks and gaps in their compliance programs, but they are continuously with optimism seeking to advance their program, embrace new ideas, and build more effective strategies. A CCO, however, has to be honest internally with key, key stakeholders. Happy talk does not substitute for motivation and realistic appraisal about what needs to be done. A CCO has to speak with honesty and clarity before its board or committee senior management and key internal stakeholders. Uh, Mike's observed too many board and senior management presentations by CCOs that offer only happy talk. We're all moving forward. We're accomplishing our goals. And the most important part of a presentation is about the weaknesses and priorities that CCOs must communicate to leadership. So uh, I don't know if it's uh, a glass half empty or a glass half full. I think it's also more about considering the audience that you have and the CCO has to wear different hats at different times of his or her employment. Tom, uh, we've got something about the Astros and you're the perfect guy to talk about it. Right, right. So Michael Peregrine Michael is a lawyer at McDermott, Will and Emery, and he writes about board issues quite often. And today it comes from the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance, and governance rather. And he takes a look at the Astro sign stealing scandal from the corporate governance perspective. Now, of course, there's no board of directors on the Astros; they're owned by Jim Crane, and of course, therein lies part of the problem. But he uses the Astro sign stealing scandal as really a starting point, Jay, to discuss the duty of Boards of Directors and Effective Compliance Program, he states the fiduciary duties as set out by the Delaware Chancery Decisions in Caremark, expanded in Marshawn and in Ray Clovis, and I would just add Bluebell Ice Cream. He talks about the MLB report. He talked about some of the red flags that should have been raised, and some of these I thought were insightful 
uh, starting with uh, the management <coughs> component of this, which was Operation Codebreaker. It was designed by an intern, then embraced and expanded upon by coaches, players, and the front office. The intern was reported, uh, excuse me, promoted within the front office. Obviously, what does that tell me? Tell you if you're uh, an intern, uh, cheat, and you'll get promoted. The uh, lack of familiarity of the organizations with MLB rules, uh, and then this this other part, um, I, I laughed kind of half-heartedly that, you know, if you're going to name something your dark arts program, why just not go all out and say it's the Death Star? And Michael points <laughs> out, I think correctly, that if something's named with a nefarious title, you just might want to look behind it to see what's there. And so the dark arts program, which included Operation Codebreaker, uh, should have been a, a red flag that was uh, raised uh, for someone to take a look at. The Astros went to Great Lakes to conceal, conceal Operation Codebreaker. He talked about uh, the compliance program data uh, and uh, how you need to use that. And then he concluded by uh, talking about uh, you looking at your organization and asking some basic questions Could a similar situation arise. There's something unique in baseball, which causes highly competent and highly compensated professionals to lie, cheat and steal uh, all the way up uh, through management. So, a great take. Uh, Michael is a long-suffering Chicago White Sox fan who beat the Astros the first time we were in the World Series when we were not accused of cheating. And um, you wrote some good stuff, so check it out. Uh, so next up, we've got something from the Wall Street Journal, Risk and Compliance Journal. Former risk officer at U.S. Bank fined for weak anti-money laundering oversight. The Treasury Department's Financial Crimes Division find a former risk manager at a regional bank in Minneapolis for failing to present, prevent corporate violations of anti-money laundering laws. Michael LaFontaine, a former chief operational risk officer at U.S. Bank N.A., was fined $450,000 on Wednesday for what the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, FinCEN, described as failure to prevent violations of the Bank Secrecy Act. In 2008, U.S. Bank was fined $613 million for what federal prosecutors and regulators, including FinCEN, described as weak anti-money laundering controls. The bank's parent company, U.S. Bank Corp., also entered into a two-year deferred prosecution agreement with federal prosecutors. U.S. Bank noted that the enforcement action is, is specific to its former employee, Mr. LaFontaine, and not against the bank. Uh, Greg Vidala, a U.S. Bank spokesman, said in an emailed statement, we are confident in the strength of the anti-money laundering program we have in place today. A spokesman for Mr. LaFontaine pointed to the language in the enforcement action, noting that Mr. LaFontaine took steps to improve the bank's anti-money laundering program. Mr. LaFontaine is proud of the work he did for U.S. Bank for more than a decade, spanning many important areas such as consumer compliance, privacy, vendor relationship, business continuity planning, and operational risk management, said Blois Olson, a spokesman. So um, I don't know. It looks like uh, the bank is saying that they're doing okay, and the former officer says that he played by the book too, but nonetheless he paid a fine of $450,000. So uh, I think there's more to come on this one. What say you, Tom? So this is a case, Jay, not of negligence by a chief risk officer. It was not the chief compliance officer, although he had previously held that position. This was someone who basically said, I don't want you to look. 
I don't want you to run the uh, analysis that we're required to by law uh, under um, the uh, Bankrupt Banking Secrecy Act and uh, report suspicious activities. So uh, you had a uh, CRO, chief risk officer, who's actively not looking. And that's why he got spanked. Uh, this was uh, not uh, the OCC, the regulatory oversight body. It actually warned him twice or warned the bank. And the bank still, uh, he still didn't do anything. So he was given plenty of opportunity. He uh, uh, went out of his way not to uh, perform the minimal requirements of the Bank Secrecy Act. Yes, it's a regulated industry. So that comes into play as well. So um, uh, this should not be seen uh, as a bellwetter or warning sign for chief compliance officers. I still think that if you do your job, if you make a decision, if you make a well-reasoned decision based upon the facts, you're not going to be sanctioned, even if you make the wrong decision. So uh, don't don't bring out the towels and start crying yet. Uh, but it does uh, re- remind us, Jay, that there are duties on a chief risk officer, particularly in a uh, regulated industry, such as financial institution. And if you have those duties, you must engage in those duties. So um, uh, interesting, uh, something that we haven't really seen in anti-corruption compliance space, but well could uh, move over. So something that everybody needs to take note of. So question for you, Tom, does conflict rob you of success? Well, Jay, conflict is the bane of many corporate uh, compliance practitioners existence. And the reason I wanted to talk about this article by Linda Hinman found in uh, Corporate Compliance Insights is she really gives a little uh, uh, kind of a mini class on how to overcome obstacles. When she uh, says that when she works with clients to help overcome conflict, she asks them to start by identifying a common goal. Then she asks 10 questions around that goal. And I found it a very useful article. And it's something to think about if you find yourself in conflict with a colleague um, in trying to achieve a compliance goal. So obviously uh, compliance uh, doesn't um, necessarily depend on the kindness of others, although um, they might. Uh, if you want to go see that uh, movie, uh, check it out, Streetcar Named Desire. Nevertheless, uh, I thought it was an interesting article and useful skills for the compliance officer going forward. So uh, next up, we're returning to risk and compliance platform Europe. And we're picking up the third part of the series called Wow Moments in Compliance. This comes to us from our colleague, Gert Vermulen. And often ethics and compliance officers only end up getting uh, singled out when things have gone wrong. Many people don't realize that ethics and compliance officers also prevents numerous crimes and unethical practices. Therefore, Gert decided to share a couple of wow moments in his compliance uh, repertoire. Uh, The first part of the series of the articles was about due diligence in the aviation industry. And last week, he followed it up with a story about due diligence in the en- en- energy industry. The third, third section will take a look at what happens when you have a change of strategy. Uh, a few months earlier, uh, Vert and his colleagues had indications that some things might have gone wrong within a local business unit. He conducted an investigation and stopped certain practices from the past. But they were going to fire a couple of people and take disciplinary action, and they wanted to figure out how would they go forward. What they decided on was a change of strategy. The question arose as to whether or not the business unit was still viable. 
could they do business in this corrupt environment? Uh, after another drink, the country manager suggested that they should completely change the strategy of the company. Going forward, they would try to be the most ethical organization in the country and in their industry. And the only way to put the misery behind them would be to attract new customers. Customers would rather do business than the old ones. As the plan came together, uh, they decided to uh, figure this out and spread it out through the company. And what happened is there was a situation that remained challenging. <clears throat> As they had stopped a number of legal uh, illegal payments, other employees received threats from former clients. People had come to their house waving knives and shouting that they would kill them if the old situation would not be uh, restored. They uh, Another thing that Gert learned is that it often helps to discuss challenges with people. And they finally decided that they should take the payment uh duties away from the local business units and make it part of the conglomerate that was further away. Vert, in the end, appeared that uh, his colleague was not able to travel to provide those explanations to the local people. So that night, Gert decided that he needed to fly back to that country. He spent a little bit more time than usual watching his children sleep. And he had tread carefully in the country anyway, but now it was more important for him to travel safely, only by car and only visit hotels. It was important, though, to show local employees that there was a situation that they were in it together and that they would appreciate the conglomerate's boots on the ground. Much to their own supplies, they not only survived the incidents, but the client portfolio, which had been shaken up, and both the turnover and the profit of the company had grown. When Gert left the organization, he received the last message from his country manager, and the local business unit had gone through major changes. He was proud of that and thanked him wholeheartedly for the vital contribution that they had made to making this change. Business leaders don't often give a compliment like that to compliance folks, so that was his real wow moment. So, Jay, uh, next up we have Julie DeMauro, um blogging about in the FCPA blog, which he's a contributing editor. The Hogel Lovins Lovells report steering the course too. Uh, we talked about it a little bit earlier in a previous podcast when Matt wrote about it, but I thought it was important to uh, bring up Julie's thoughts, and she really uh, details some of the troubling findings and how companies are cutting back or compliance, or at least those reporting uh, to Hogan Lovells on, on this point. And uh, she really points out that it's imperative for compliance leaders to get in front of their top level executives and board members and remind them to implement improvements, not wait for the inevitable um, violation. And the uh, if you t- if you take a look at this in the context of Mike Peregrine's article, I think it would provide a great conversation for you to have with your uh, board of directors. So uh, good stuff uh, once again from Julie. Uh, Jim Deloach is on part one of a two-part series. Jay, can you manage digital disruption? Yeah, so this comes to us from Corporate Compliance Insights. And uh, in this part one of the article, Jim talks about the game you must win. And he says that disruptive innovation has a clear impact on the half-life of companies' business models. Uh, Protivity's Jim Deloach discusses how disruption and digital transformation present a new opportunity and risk that is shaping and speeding up business model changes. Um, The contemporary notion of disruptive change really came into vogue just about 20 years ago when former Intel CEO Andy Grove published his outstanding book, Only the Paranoid Survive, 
In it, he coined the term strategic inflection point, defining it as a time in the life of business when fundamentals are about to change. Now, 20 years later, Groh's premise is especially prescient. As he also eloquently observed, the ability to recognize that winds have shifted and to take appropriate action before you wreck your boat is crucial to the future of your organization. He decided, uh, or in basically in laying out this uh, four-point plan, Jim first talks about evaluating digital reg- readiness. And digital form- transformation is about transforming the organization, its culture, people, and processes to think more and act more broadly. The four areas of focus center not on specific technology, but rather in goals and outcomes. They are better customer engagement, new business models, better decision-making, and operational performance. Next up, the second takeaway is that digital leadership requires a a certain state of mind. It's about changing the way an organization acts and thinks in everything it does. To be successful, executive management must prepare the organization to compete in the digital age. They also have to understand what transformation entails. They have been disruptive, transformative events in the business before, but the industrial revolution to the introduction of personal computers, digital is just the latest. However, one could argue that today's transformations are more pronounced than in the past, and they should consider changes in their organizations that are undergoing. Some executive directors use the terms transforming the business or business optimization or digital transformation. True digitalization starts at the core. The executive team and board, therefore, must transform themselves before they can offer effective oversight of the organization's journey to digital readiness. They must focus on resiliency and agility. Another core role for management and the board is oversight of digital risk. How do you know that the organization's innovation process is making progress and taking the company to where they need to go? A dashboard report may be useful in focusing dialogue between management and the board. And some of the questions that they might ask are, do we understand how digital is changing the economics of our business? Are we thinking about, are we thinking out of the box about our business model? What fundamental assumptions have we made in formulating our strategy? And how can we address any deficiencies in the plan? Finally, the key takeaway is that management and the board can play an important role in fostering a resilient and agile mindset. This requires digitally literate and digitally savvy savvy executives and directors having a broader, more diverse perspective regarding how the organization should embrace their digital future. Next month, Jim will come back with part two in which he'll focus on three additional topics keeping an eye on the customer experience and competitive advantage, ensuring there is a compelling plan that fits market realities, and considering human digital transformation. We link to this article, and we look forward to next month's uh, installment. Tom, uh, you have now in the month of March, and it's time to talk about innovation and compliance. What were some of the topics that were discussed this week on your podcast? So, Jay, uh, you're correct. For March, we changed topics in uh, 31 days to a more effective compliance program. Uh, this month, I'm looking at innovation and compliance. We should note that this month's sponsor is Affiliated Monitors, Inc., a company you may be somewhat familiar with. Um, Monday, I asked the question, what is innovation and compliance? Tuesday, I introduced the concept of ComTech. On Wednesday, we looked at the skills needed for innovation. 
uh, today, or rather on Thursday, we I talked about the advantage of data and compliance. And finally, uh, on Friday, strategies for and with AI and compliance. This is going to be a fun month. It's going to look forward uh, to some of the innovations that we've uh, I've been uh, talking about and really want to put forward for the compliance practitioner, Jay. So uh, if you're interested in innovation and compliance, this is the month for you. Once again, thanks to Affiliated Monitors uh, for sponsorship. And I hope you'll uh, listen in for the, for the full month. Jay, um, coronavirus notwithstanding, I've got a couple of events coming up I wanted to talk about. On Tuesday, March 10th, I'm hosting, uh, or rather, Conversant is hosting a roundtable in Houston, Texas, at which I'm participating. It'll be from 12 to 2 at Stake 48. Our featured speaker will be Philip Winterburn, and our featured guest is Terry Springer from HP. Terry's a great speaker, and I know you'll enjoy it. We're going to focus on KPIs for compliance. On uh, Thursday, March 12th, I'm going to be in New York City as Conversant is hosting an innovation forum from 3.30 to 7 at uh, Santina not Sabrina. And we will um, uh, hear from uh, top CCOs about innovation and compliance, and I'm going to talk about it too. And if you can't make it to Houston or New York on March 19th, how about joining me in uh, Philly for Baker Tilly's sponsorship of the Philadelphia chapter of the Institute for Internal Auditors Fraud and uh, Ethics Symposium. So uh, that'll be on uh, Friday the 19th. So, um, uh, excuse me, Friday the 20th. So I hope uh, you can uh, join me at one or more of these events. Um, so what say you, Jay? Uh, I say Pat's or Gino's. Are you going to get a chance to go to Cheesesteak Central in Philly or not? Uh, you know, it's up to Mr. Marks. Uh, he's always a great host, and we'll see what he has uh, for us. Uh, I, I should definitely know that my- all of the events, or at least the conversant events, are at no charge, so check them out. All right. And uh, if you link to the show notes, uh, we'll have information there on how you can register for both um, events. Um, Tom, anything that we need to cover from a sports perspective or are you ready to go enjoy uh, the humidity in Southern and Southern Florida? I'm going to enjoy the humidity. I'm spending Sunday at the new Star Wars exhibit and Saturday. Mrs. Compliance Evangelist will be checking out Harry Potter. Uh, we're waiting, well, obviously, for opening day and uh, haven't decided if I'm going to go see the Astros on opening day or not. Um, March 18th, though, big day, NFL, free agent day. So uh, the Tom Brady countdown is on, Jay. Uh, I've certainly resigned myself to the golden one going somewhere else. I don't know what your feelings may be on this, but uh, it seems to be uh, Boston sports sporting teams may be taking, uh, losing some, some really big names uh, here this spring. It looks like it, it might be a rebuilding year, both in Foxborough and the friendly confines of Fenway. So uh, that is what uh, spring break and s- spring training will bring us soon. So uh, I'd like to uh, put a pin in this one. I'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA episode 195 for the week ending March 6, 2020. The Where Are You Going for Spring Break edition. On behalf of Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, and myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for spending time with us this week, and we look forward to bringing you all the news and ethics and compliance next Friday on This Week in FCPA. Thanks so much. Have a great weekend.
Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. Check out the show notes for the citations to the articles that we referenced. Some great stuff in there. Jay and I will be back again next week to take a look at some of the week's top stories on This Week in FCPA. If you're going to be in Houston on Tuesday or New York on Thursday, I hope you'll join me uh, for one of the uh, conversant events. Uh, They're both at no cost, and we've linked to the registration in the show notes. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again for listening. As an independent monitor, then the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance program, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.